there follows an important public health announcement from Nefet. This is Tony Holohan. I'm Professor Sam McConkie. Our recent instructive guide on how to shake hands in the safest and most appropriate way possible was very well received by your listeners. So we thought we'd join you again to discuss Valentine's Day. This particular day of the year is a hotbed of physical intimacy. Disgusting. And despite the fact that most of this activity takes place between people from within the same household or bubble, that does not negate the inherent dangers at play. Our advice for Valentine's Day is thus. Avoid all physical contact if possible, but if one must engage, follow these steps. Inspect the COVID cert of the subject, being mindful of potential fraud in relation to such documentation, and ensure its genuine origin. Take the subject's temperature, ensuring it falls within the WHO-approved range, or else... Isolate yourself. We recommend they fill out a COVID questionnaire in case it is required for legal and insurance purposes. If you are satisfied with the vital status check, you must both shower separately, dry off with freshly washed towels and apply a coat of 98% alcohol. Again, this must be done separately. Following whatever act of physical intimacy you have chosen to engage in, we strongly recommend that it is performed quickly and in a near full state of dress. Disgusting. Disengage from the subject. Shower once again. Separately. And apply a new layer of disinfectant. Towels, clothing, etc. must be washed immediately at a temperature of no less than 90 degrees. Both of you should then take another antigen test. Following current HSE guidelines in the unfortunate event of a positive result. Remember. Physical intimacy is the petri dish of human behaviour. If you must engage, take all precautions required for a safe Transaction. Happy Valentine's Day. Some very sound advice there, really, from Professor Sam McConkie and Tony Holohan, wasn't it? They're very thorough, aren't they? It's interesting to see how they're occupying their time now that things are a lot quieter in Nefet HQ. And in a few minutes' time, we'll be playing you some very highly confidential classified audio Uh, we've gotten our hands on recently. It's uh, leaked voicemails from Professor Luke O'Neill's phone revealing what he has been up to lately. I think you'll find them very interesting indeed. But first, my guest on this episode of the Mario Rosenstock podcast is a man that you're probably seeing, hearing and reading in the media a lot in the last few weeks, especially if you're a rugby fan. And who isn't at this time of the year? Jerry Thornley is one of the country's most eminent rugby writers. He's ghost-written books for Ronan O'Gara, Trevor Brennan and Johnny Sexton. And he has some great stories to tell from his time covering rugby's biggest names. It was Johnny Sexton's debut, surprise, surprise, against Fiji at the RDS. <laughs> and I wrote this positive piece about Johnny Sexton. He deserved this crack at it, whatever else. And Raj came into the media room and called me over. What the fuck do you know about fucking Danny? <laughs> he didn't speak for a couple of years afterwards. <laughs> the two teams are running out in turn. And the referee's at the end of the tunnel. And he hands the cigarette to the referee. So the referee just... <laughs> mistakenly takes it and the camera's there and the referee's got a cigarette in his hand <laughs> Willie Duggins <laughs> and I stood in front of Ali and it was it was like meeting God and he started jabbing with his two hands either side of me and started talking to me and I just completely froze on the spot I don't think I could say a word back to him you did wear a chain though didn't you Jerry? no I can't remember <laughs> yeah I remember you used to I remember your legs you used to show me the chain <laughs> anyway I love your hair as well the wavy hair there's a big Pablo Escobar vibe off you, Jerry. So, <laughs> just wondering, is there anything we should know? Rob, Rob, you're getting a bit cheeky there. My full chat with Jerry Thornley coming up in just a few minutes' time. So what are the members of NEFET and the other experts from the world of COVID up to 
now that the whole COVID thing has kind of quietened down so much. As we've been hearing on the podcast hotline, Sam McConkie and Tony Holan are, of course, continuing to protect us from the unseen dangers hidden in everyday human interactions. But what about Luke O'Neill? I mean, he was a cause celebre for the last two years, wasn't he? I mean, he's become quite the national treasure, the national celebrity on the back of this pandemic. How is he going to keep that, I don't know, momentum? Is that a good word for it? Going. We got our hands on some recently leaked voicemails from Luke O'Neill's phone, which might illuminate the situation just a little bit. Yeah, you've reached Professor Luke O'Neill. I'll do it. Yes, hi Luke. This is Pat Kenny again. Uh, look, uh, just because COVID is over uh, doesn't mean we have to be. There must be something you can do on my show, on News Talk, Sport, International Affairs, something. Call me, call me, please, please, Luke, call me. Luke, it's Michael here from Penguin Books again. Uh, listen, we're loving your children's book idea. It's just what the market needs, we feel. Another children's book. And, uh, oh yeah, we, we love the title too. Uh, Uncle Luke and Auntie Jen. Fantastic. It's going to be huge. Bye. Give us a call. Luke, it's Jim Sheridan here returning your call. Um, about your movie script in featuring yourself in the title role. Uh, just a small query about the title in the name of the immunologist. It might be a bit clunky. Uh, just call me. <coughs> yes, Professor O'Neill. This is President Higgins here. Just so we're clear. Uh, I do not have the power within me to nominate the next president. Is that clear? The next president must be elected democratically by the people. Now, please stop calling the Auras. Thank you. Luke, uh, this is PK again. You never called me. Uh, not to worry. Uh, what about uh, I shaft Paul Harrington, uh, thus enabling you, ipso facto, to come onto my show at News Talk and play a number on piano, which I think the audience would love. Uh, call me. Luke, this is Blind by Board Club. How's your mental health? I'd like to invite you on to my podcast to talk about long COVID in orangutans and Kimbordo dragons. Hello, Luke. This is Professor McCarthy in the Trinity College Immunology Department. Are you still working here? Can you call us, please? It's been a while. PK here <clears throat> again. You never called me. I made you. I could break you you little <laughs> and who knows what will happen next for professor luke o'neill surely dancing with the stars uh, uh it beckons it's very much a case of watch this space i guess another space to watch is your nearest curry store because they want to set you up for a brilliant season of sport by giving you unbeatable prices on the best electronics appliances and consumer tech johnny sexton has heard the news so let's cross over live to one of Curry's stores right now Johnny's injured, so he has plenty of time. And here we are, deep inside a curry store. So much on offer, so many incredible items to choose from. In steps Johnny Sexton. Hi, excuse me. Sexton looks around, surveys his options. He needs help. 
Yes, can I help you? Uh, yeah, I'm looking for big screen TVs, please. No problem. This way, please. Thanks. Sexton makes his move. He's going down the aisle. He's past the kitchen appliances. Incredible value. He has a look over at the laptops. Beautiful laptops at Curry's. Nice. Sexton keeps going. He's at the TV and entertainment section. He's so close. He can feel it. Sexton looks around. This is the moment. Oh, look at this. He sees it. It's a beautiful big screen TV. This might cost him. Wow, great value, I'll take it. It's there! He's done it! Johnny Sexton has done it! He's walked away with an incredible bargain from Curry's who have proven again this year they won't be beaten! They will never be beaten on price! Thanks. See ya. Bye, Johnny. Stop standing around in Curry's shouting your head off, will you? You're stupid. Sorry. So, get yourself all set up for a great season of sport with a visit to Curry's. Why don't you? They will never be beaten on price. And thanks to Curry's for their ongoing support of the Mario Rosenstock podcast. And as ever, thanks to you, the most important element, you right there listening right now, for supporting us, for listening in, subscribing on Apple or following us on Spotify or giving us a rating. And most importantly, maybe telling a friend or two about this podcast. If you tell one friend, I'd be eternally grateful um, to tell them about this podcast and tell them to check it out. Keep spreading the good word. And as always, you can contact me with any queries you have about the show, whether it's suggestions for guests, whether it's uh, analysing one of my sketches or telling me which stuff to do or not to do or concentrate more on or any tips you might have, be more than happy to hear them. My address is mariorosenstock at gmail.com. I read them all and I get back to most of them. So please send something in to me. So let's meet my guest this episode. The crowds have fallen silent. You could hear a pin drop in the Aviva. Jerry Thornley emerges from the tunnel, runs out onto the pitch and sits down in front of the microphone and he starts talking about why he fell in love with the game of rugby. My, my dad and my mum, basically, particularly my dad, was a member of uh, Trinity College and he was a professor there, and he would get three touchline tickets for every home game. And we lived in Sandy Mount, so we could walk along the, the train tracks up to Lansdowne Road, and they were always touchline tickets. And I, I'd say I would have first gone to Lansdowne Road when I was about six or seven, something like that. And they, they would sit me in between them, and they would put a rug across our laps, the three of us. And whenever Ireland scored first, the dad would get out a little flask of whiskey and have a little sip out of it and pass across to my mum. So I always associate the, the, the odour of whiskey with uh, the old Lansdowne Road. And uh, the, it was just, yeah, it was like that was just a, just a, just made an indelible impression on me. They would have been, my first ever experience of live sport would have been watching Ireland and Lansdowne Road. Did you ever get the chance to share a, a schnifter of whiskey with your old man? No, no, I didn't sadly. No, I was too young for that. But I, it, um, yeah, but I do remember I the smell. When you got older, quite... I, don't mean, I don't mean when you were six. Well, no, because well, maybe I would have actually. Maybe I would have. Yeah. I, I, I certainly when I became a journalist, I couldn't very well bring along a flash to the press box, could I? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I do remember like Tom Gray scoring a try or Willie Duggan or somebody like about ten yards away from me in the corner flag. It was just amazing. You know what I mean? Just yeah. Just amazing, and and so amazing. and so when you became a journalist, you're kind of you you were thinking maybe pretty much the gig for me would be the rugby gig if I could. Well, yeah, although I loved the variety when I started out doing. I even like some summers I did a bit of golf, a bit of gab, a bit of you know everything. Um, road bowling, you name it, I did it. Tennis, obviously, I adored, and I paid my own way to Wimbledon. Um, boxing, my dad was a big big boxing fan. 
He got boxing news every week. Uh, one of my early childhood experiences was being taken to the Croke Park gym and to watch Muhammad Ali work out before his fight against Al Blue Lewis the no next way. day. And then he got You saw Ali in person working out? I met him afterwards. I was brought in, uh, the old man, because my old man was a very well-known TV celebrity in, in his time. He used to present seven days on RTE. He was a politician with the Labour Party, Dr. David Thornley. Oh, Dr. David Thornley. I didn't know that, Jerry. Yeah, yeah. He's my old yes. man. He's my old man. And oh, so he had, he had loads of contacts in Trinity. He was a member of Trinity Boxing Club as well. And he, he had lots yeah. of contacts. So he, he got me into the dressing room and I met Ali. Go I on. Think, I think I was about seven or eight or something like that. And I stood in front of Ali and it was, it was like meeting God because A, I'd never met a, a black man, nor such a beautiful man. And he was ripped and he was just in his shorts and he started jabbing with his two hands either side of me and started talking to me. And I just completely froze on the spot. I don't think I could say a word back to him. I remember getting his autograph, you know, the big flourish of an autograph. And meanwhile, my old man went off and spoke to a guy, another boxer who was on the undercard and came away from the two of us left. And he said, um, and the fellow he was being said, he'll be a future middleweight champion of the world. And he was, it was John Conte. Oh yeah, the British, um, yeah. the British. And that's where you got your predilections for moustaches, presumably. <laughs> Because <laughs> yes. he had a big moustache, didn't he? He did, didn't he? Yeah, he did. I think Joe Bugner was on the under, undercard as well, would you believe? Oh, Joe Bugner. Yeah. My God. You met Ali. I met Ali. Yeah, I met and Ali. Not only, did you meet, not only did you meet him, you knew who you were meeting when you met him. Oh, God, completely. Oh, yeah. Oh, I was yeah. in awe of him. As was any, any young kid at the time. I, Ali was probably my favourite sporting hero of all time. I've watched all the documentaries again and again. Yeah. Actually, now that you mentioned, let's go on a detour slightly. So you met Ali. Who else yeah. have you met in terms of... Who else have you met in terms of sporting icons that's left an impression on you? Or, or maybe not. For example, you haven't met Federer. No, I haven't met Federer. Um, Nastasia, Eli Nastasia was my big idol growing up. And I met him when he came to play in an overage tournament or what, over 35 tournament or something in Riverview. And I interviewed yeah. him. And they say, yeah. never meet your heroes. <laughs> yeah. Um, that was a bit of a disappointment. Uh, Remember being pretty awestruck by Jonah Lomu when I got a one-on-one interview with him. Oh, that was God, love Jonah Lomu, yeah. Yeah, lovely, lovely man. Lovely, big, gentle, giant of a man off the pitch. And I confess I got his autograph for my son as well. That was about the only time I've ever asked for an autograph at the end of an interview. Uh, that yeah. left an indelible impression on me. Um, what about rugby? Who's Who have you enjoyed meeting in rugby? I mean, do you have to do a lot of um, interviews in rugby, face-to-face interviews? Is that Does that come into your... Uh, Realm? Oh, that is actually one of the nicest part of the job, but unfortunately it hasn't mm. been done in two years because of COVID and all the restrictions. So, And it's tough on players as well. They're looking at a screen with all these different journalists looking back at them. You're not going to get gold out of them, are you? Even, yeah. And there's been very few one-on-ones, one or two along the way uh, by phone or by Zoom call or whatever. Look, um, jeepers. But do you know what, well, do you know what, Jerry? Do you know what, Jerry? I was going to ask you there, though. You, you talked about talking to players now. Talking to players nowadays is hard enough, right? Talking to them mm-hmm. on Zoom is, either, is, is even harder. Yep. Talking to them in the modern day with social media and the way things get leaked and the way things get, everything is, is talked about and, and drip fed to the to social media. Is it easier, it, was it easier to talk to players in the 1990s, let's say, be, than it is now? And did you get more out of them? Did you meet more characters? Yeah, much more so, Mario, to be honest. Now that you ask me when I think back, definitely. Like mm. when when Munster started off doing really well in the Heineken Cup, it was just they were happy to promote their players and they were all characters. They came from the amateur game. 
They had stories to tell. You could get one-on-one access, no bother. They were interesting. Um, you didn't have to go through press officers or team managers really that much at all. It was yeah. just much more relaxed, free and easy. Um, People like build- Simon Gagan and stuff like that were interesting characters. And- oh, yeah, completely. Jim Staples was so giving his time, so articulate. Rob Henderson, still a regard as a mate. I remember interviewing Hendo on a on a Lions tour. Was it 19... 97, I'd say. Yeah, 97, that's when it was. Yeah. And he invited me up to his room and he ordered room service, which was an omelette and chips. And uh, he downed all the omelette and all the chips. He was sharing them with me. He said, no, no, you're grand, you're grand. So he was eating them all. And we're trying, the interview hasn't started yet. And then he lit up a cigarette and he goes, ah, all's well in Shea Hendo. <laughs> you don't get interviews <laughs> like that anymore, Mario. <laughs> no, professional athlete. Brilliant. <laughs> That would have been just on the cusp of when um, rugby was, yeah. was, was going yeah, professional. Yeah, just two years into the pro game. But yeah, there were great yeah. characters back in those days. Like uh, Great stories as well about Willie Duggan. I remember Fergus, uh, for, for, uh, Fergus Slattery always telling a story. Um, by the way, you're open to tell me any of these stories. If, you want, if any of them come to you, I'll try and trigger your brain. That great story, it's as old as the hills, but our listeners on the podcast mightn't know it. And Willie Duggan, of course, was a famous back row for Ireland and Willie was from Wexford and he was an electrician and he'd come up to training every so often for Ireland and he'd come up in his car and uh, they'd go, they'd go, to, Willie, Willie, have you warmed up yet? And he'd go, sure didn't I have the fucking heater on in the car. <laughs> that would be Willie. And he'd be, he, Willie was the one that was famously having the smoke on the sidelines. That's right. And he famously, famously coming out for an international Lansdowne Road. The two teams are running out in turn. And the referee's at the end of the tunnel. And he's having his last drag of a cigarette. And he hands the cigarette to the referee. So the referee just... <laughs> Mistakenly takes it. And the camera's there and the referee's got a cigarette in his hand. <laughs> Willie Duggins. It's fucking brilliant. It really I remember is. Uh, my first tour as Rugby Corps, 98, South Africa. Trevor Brennan made his debut uh, in, as a sub in the first test. And he was itching to get onto the pitch. and they were, But the replacement were in the second dressing room. And Claw was having a smoke in the, among the replacements. And Peter Clausey. Yeah, Peter Clausey. And Trevor was like, you couldn't take it. So he ran out and did warm up after warm up. And he kept running in front of Warren Gatland and Donald Lennon doing warm ups and warm ups. And he just, eventually, it was a warm day in South Africa. Eventually, Donald Lennon caught him over. He says, Trevor, warm up, you're going on. And he says, warm up, I'm fucking roasting. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. Great, of course. I did a book with Trevor. I did a book with Trevor. That was great. So I read in my notes. So I read in my notes. I mean, he's he's a wild man, isn't he? Or has been, or used to be. Ah, don't know about that. They were like, they were all a bit wild in those days. They drank a lot more. They weren't pouring over laptops, going through the opposition and learning off plays and line of cause jokes. No, but he wouldn't take, he wouldn't take, um, like he wouldn't, he wouldn't take prisoners in, in an argument. Like he'd go over and sort things out straight away, wouldn't he? Oh yeah, like he he saw it as his remit that whenever he came up a a big name player in the Irish club game, he had to have a scrap with him. He had to try and make his name with Bechtel, mm. with Bechtel Rangers and St Mary's and so forth. And uh, yeah, he didn't put him. He put himself about to lose famously. Came over to watch um, Leinster in action. They were looking to sign Victor Costello, or maybe they were playing to lose, and they were keeping an eye on Victor Costello. And Trevor Brennan came on. He um, put their out half out of the game with a monster hit. He got yellow card and he got man of the match. And a year later, they signed him. 
<laughs> exactly. The respect. Absolute respect for the man. And of course, then he made his life down in France, didn't he? So uh, it turned yeah, out Yeah, great well. story. Great story. And yeah. made his life, has a couple of bars there now, has a good life. Um, great character. His family have settled brilliantly. And um, his oldest son has been a captain of the French under-20s. And his second youngest son, Josh, is also captain of the French under-20s. So they're both playing professionally now, one with Brie, one with Toulouse. It's a, it's a great story. What was it like working with Ronan O'Gara? I mean, obviously, you'd probably, I hope I'm not presumptuous in saying, you'd be aware of my my my, my personification of him on the radio. I and very. And, and the kind of, the droll, almost dead, uh, you know, uh, voice that he has and, you know, the, the, the monotone that he has and that kind of, cork straightness and the dryness and all that sort of stuff what was it like working with Raj I mean I know he's he was the second guest he was the second guest ever ever on this podcast Jerry wow and I I talked to him from um from La Rochelle and I got a great interview out of him um because there is something very intense about Raj like one of the things he said to me and this was no messing now before the interview started uh he was there all right Mario how's it going and I went hey Raj thanks a million for doing it Okay, just get a few things straight for starters. Um, what level of intensity are you looking for? And I went, sorry, Roger, what do you mean? Well, for the piece, for the interview, are you? Are we talking seven, eight? Are we talking all out intensity? I mean, what are you talking? I thought he was taking the piss. I thought he was like being this, taking the piss out of a kind of a perfectionist Roy Keane thing. And I went, I just said 10, Roger, give it everything. And I saw his body change. He went, Okay, that's what you want. Let's go for that then. <laughs> going, Rod, Ronan O'Gara is going to turn himself up to 11 and give me the full intensity. If he was using sporting metaphor to, to, to describe how will I approach this interview, all total commitment or just it's easy enough like. Um, yeah. And so that's what he gave to me. And I found his almost literal way of looking at life. Um, and he's very deep as well. And what I mean by deep is very, very Hard thinking. He thinks, thinks very deeply. Reminds me a little bit about of Padraig Harrington in, in, in that depth, the way they really, really analyse not only the, the game, but seemingly themselves as well. Um, you know, they, they do re- veer into the areas of emotional intelligence and thinking and feelings and all this sort of stuff. A fascinating character. How did you, how did you get on with him and what was the process of writing that book with him? A truly fascinating character. Probably the most fascinating character I've come across as a rugby journalist, to be honest. Um, I, I interviewed him when he was very young, like when he was starting out, like with Cork Calm, before he was even breaking into the Munster team. You could see he was something special about him. And even then, his interviews were gold. I remember vividly once Pat Garrity, Lord Rest His Soul, the late Munster press officer, and before that, but actually once Leinster press officer, came into... Uh, Musgrave Park, where Munster were training. It was a media day, and they were going to we're going to be given a coach and players as usual. And we said, Pat, who have we got today? And he says, uh, Rog, oh by Jesus, you made sure the batteries were up to speed, and your, your new fresh batteries in the dictaphones. You made sure both were working. You had them. You had your start preparing questions. You sat in the front row. You didn't miss a word. You taped both. That well, might have only been fifteen minutes. And you'd ring the office, and say, I don't want to hear a word of a lie here. I want two pieces out of Rona Guard today. And it would just flow like honey because the quotes were gold. And he was, and he's carried that into his punditry, into his coaching. He, um, he, uh, he's a slippery as an eel now. Writing a book wasn't the easiest thing, tying them down. Like, but we used well, to he meet has seven him. phone numbers. 
Exactly. When I was calling, when we were calling him, he has seven mobile phones, six bat phones, and his own phone. And I have like Raj Toulouse, Raj La Rochelle, Raj Cork, Raj February, Raj April 2017. I have names and dates attached to his phones. The only other person I know who has more phones than him is Davy Fitzgerald, another slippery bollocks, I'll tell you. <laughs> yep, yep, that was my experience with him. We used to meet in Cashel, kind of the halfway point nearer his end than mine, but it was. Uh... Again, it was just great sitting down with them, great getting to know them that bit better. We had our falling outs along the way. He didn't like a couple of things I wrote about him. We actually yeah, how would that work? How would a falling out work? That's int- I'm interested to hear that. I, 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 I can understand easy when you say, Raj is gold, Raj drips gold, I wrote it, it's easy. Because Raj is a fascinating mental uh, specimen almost. But how does a falling out work with somebody like him? Tell us the little process behind that. So like, what would you have fallen out of and how does that go? It was Johnny Sexton's debut, surprise, surprise, against Fiji at the <laughs> RDS. <laughs> and the team 2009. Was, yep, and the team was picked, and I wrote this positive piece about Johnny Sexton. He deserved this crack at it, whatever else. <laughs> and Raj came into the media room and gave me the shepherd, so called me over. What the fuck do you know about fucking... And he, went like, <laughs> he didn't speak for a couple of years afterwards. <laughs> really? So he actually gave you the bums rushed because he gave Johnny a positive review? Yeah, I remember telling Declan Kidney about it afterwards and Declan just went, ah, just venting, just letting off steam. And so, you know, he wasn't he wasn't happy with Johnny taking his number 10 jersey, even for that one game against Fiji. He didn't like the threat. We all know about their very interesting relationship. And there's another fascinating guy, Johnny Sexton. Huge amount of time for him as well. They're both very similar. I wonder if it's something to do with being a 10, but you ask them a question and they actually consider the question. They actually pause and think about it and give you a thoughtful answer. And it's invariably a really interesting, good, honest answer. And it's well thought out and it's articulate. Um, yeah, so I, for a little while, I didn't, we didn't speak then, but I still had his number. So I'd send the odd text with no response. But then then we just uh, had a rapprochement and uh, it was, I was delighted we did. And I still speak to him occasionally now in La Rochelle. And uh, I love his punditry. I just love, love his punditry. So why? I, I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope he's going to be a great coach. It's a big job. He's taken on any job, top 14, head coach. Um, non-French head coaches don't tend to last long. And that it's, it's the premiership of rugby. You know what I mean? It's, yes, it's, uh, but he's already made it to the realm of very, very good coach, I would suggest. Oh, completely. Jerry, hasn't he? Completely mm. and utterly. Mm. And uh, I would be not in the least bit surprised if he doesn't one day um, coach Ireland. I, w- I, w- I would imagine he will do. I would, I would hope he will do, and I would imagine he will do. He's a... He's a, he's a fascinating character and he builds... Do you know what I loved about him? He's been asked that. He's been asked that a number of times. And you know what I love about his answer? He says, yes, I do want yeah. to manage Ireland. <laughs> he doesn't hedge his bets. It's like that thing. He gives an interesting answer to an interesting question. So yeah. he obviously... Sa- he doesn't kind of fudge the question. He goes, yeah, I'm not going to lie to you. I want to be Irish coach. <laughs> That's it. That's it. <laughs> and he'll, you know, and he says, when now, when that happens is another matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, we'd go down the the the, the whole to- total realms of gift grub, joyous jizz, gold, which would be Paul O'Connell and himself coming in at the same time, and then we can have a party. <laughs> yeah, yes, it's not beyond the bounds of belief. No, 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 no. When I was doing the book uh, with him, um, for example, he'd be uh, he'd be quite forthright. It was it wasn't his biography; it was his second book. It was Raj on Guard, and so it was like Raj's thoughts on rugby and the world and everything else. And he was talking about a. Uh, you know, overseas players, project players and stuff. And he says, uh, eight years, eight years before they, they should be eligible. I went, geez, eight years, that's a that's a bit long. Isn't that's a long part of your career, given how long a career is. is 
non-negotiable. <laughs> That's it. Like, you know what I mean? Okay, in the wet. <laughs> yeah. Working with Raj. So it was a memorable experience. And uh, did the, were you happy with the end product, the book? Um, you're never completely happy with a book, really, because you always think you could have done it 10, 20% better or whatever. You know what I mean? You, you always want more time. You always, you know, I always wish that... Did it sell well? Um, I think it sold very pretty well, although the best of all the books I sold was the most surprising one. The one that sold the best was actually Trevor. It was number one bestseller that Christmas, would you believe? Was it? Yeah. 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 Have you read helped the, the fact have that you we, re- helped the fact that we were doing a diary for five years in the Irish Times before that a weekly yeah, diary okay, okay. during so during the time that I didn't call a flavor. People, I, I remember uh, I I'd written up a few chapters for Steve Ryan at Red Rock Press, and he said, "This is good. This is good, Jerry. This, you need to get him angry. You need to get him on own and get us angry." So I was over in Toulouse. I was walking around. He, Paula was wheeling one of the kids in the pram, as it was then. I think it might have been Josh and Trevor and myself were walking around. I said, "Paula, do you mind if I just..." Have 20 minutes, half an hour on my own with Trevor. I want to sit down here. And I sat down with him. I said, Trevor, here are the players that played in the back row and second row for Ireland in the five years you've been with Toulouse and never been picked once. And I list them all out. And he thumped the table. He said, Jesus, I'm better than any of them. And he went yeah. off and won. So I wrote up the chapter and Steve Ryan said, yep, you got him angry. <laughs> yeah, very good. What about um, rugby pundits, uh, Jerry? I mean, so I'll, I'll lay my cards on the table here now. So you can be as forthcoming as you like. Hopefully you'll be very forthcoming, hint, hint. Um, but I'll lay my cards on the table and go, I love George Hook. And the reason I love George Hook is because I think George Hook made great telly. Funnily enough, I didn't never liked him on radio. Um, but I think he made great telly. Um, because I think rugby, um, like anything else, is also about entertainment. And like him, loathe him, think he's right, think he's wrong, inaccurate, accurate. I've always thought he made great entertainment. I always thought as well his... his um, his partnership with Pope was like a nice uh, chemistry there as well. What did you think? Are, do you think punditry it ain't as good as it used to be? Or are you one of those people to think, Mario, to be honest with you, it's better than it used to be? Wow. Um, I think it's better. I think it's better. You have to say it's mm. better because you have people like Raj, obviously. Who's, I know I give you something entirely about the Hook Pope double act. It was very entertaining, brilliant for its time. But I, mm. think, um, I think punditry has come on so much through just through the through technology, the way they can freeze frame things, the way they can show different replays now, different angles where players missed up. I remember Bernard Jackman, for example, highlighting the Caelan Doris try through the middle of a rock, and he just showed how Ardy Savea got attracted into the rock, which meant he wasn't the pillar blocking that. And I thought, you know, that's just really... Uh, you didn't get that kind of punditry 20 years ago. Do you know what I mean? And you, you get that now. I think Birch is a really superb pundit. You've got Murray Kinsler doing his stuff on the sidelines. It's really good. I, I think generally, I think re, I think viewers are being better informed now about what's gone right and what's gone wrong for teams on the pitch. Key moments. There's no doubt about that, Jerry. I mean, with Bernard Jackman, you'll see how Artie Savea is just there. There's Artie Savea. He's, 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 he's dropped out there because he's, he's not acting at the pillar. And with George Hook, he would have gone... Audi Surveyor, okay, Michael Collins is going in the military car by Bale the Block. Bang, the sniper takes him out. Now, Fina Fall and Fina Gale, where do you stand? Are you Audi Surveyor or are you the pillar? <laughs> You're going, I'm getting a history lesson in Michael Collins here, but I have no idea if I'm learning about rugby. Um, no, it was great so- entertainment for sure. Great entertainment. Great entertainment indeed. Yeah, great yeah. entertainment. Well, just, yeah, so, just interesting yeah. on that one, Mario. I remember asking, yeah, yeah. Interviewing, interviewing Raj once about, like I said, you're very good at this punditry. Like you, you seem to take it quite seriously. And he says, look, 
I, he says, I'm very conscious that I'm speaking for viewers down in West Cork or Donegal or wherever they are who might only tune into rugby five times a year or whatever it is. So I've got to, I've got to give them value. I'm being paid to give value. So I've got to, I've got to give them information. I've got to be considerate about this. I'm telling the one who takes his role seriously as a pundit and does his research and I think is very good, no agenda, very balanced, is Brian O'Driscoll. He doesn't just live off his name. I actually think he's always very good in podcasts or his co-com or whatever else. For example, Connors were playing um, Stadford, say, and they were letting a winning lead slip. And he just, as quick as anything, he says, why are they box kicking here? They now need to hold on to the ball, which was right. And then another time, Jack Carley puts down a long kick 50 metres and Stad run it back 40 minutes without even being encroached upon, without any, without any engagement from the enemy. He said, and you just hear O'Driscoll in the background to Ryan Newton say, no chase, no chase, no chase. So I think, you know, he's, he's very good as well. I always listen to Brian. I agree with you. I think O'Driscoll is superb and you see how brilliant he is on off the ball. Um, again, you, you sort of get the, the impression, highly intelligent person, as well with someone like Raj. Yeah. It's not uncommon, funnily enough, in sports people that they are highly intelligent. Um, it's a funny one. It's something, it's something about their intelligence. It's something that... The intelligence they have is not a surprise, given what they're able to do sometimes on the pitch. Namely, physical intelligence isn't entirely disassociated with mental intelligence. It probably is with emotional intelligence, but not mental intelligence. Mental acuity, sharpness, quickness, the ability to be aware of your surroundings is possibly linked with other forms of intelligence. And you often, you often find some of these people are either far more intelligent than you thought they are or actually just downright intelligent. Do you know yep. what I mean? Yep, I know what you mean. I agree with you totally. And then when you think of out halves like Raj, and I'd say Johnny could be a very good co-com if he ever pundit if he wanted to be one day. If you like, they're the quarterbacks of the game. They've got to be constantly surveying and scanning and reading and seeing what's going on. You know what I mean? That's that's part of their remit. Yeah. Uh, change attack here slightly, Jerry. And I suppose this would be more a, a general question about the future of rugby. I mean, <clears throat> another person might sit here and go, depending on where, what, what position they were coming from, they might go, Jerry, rugby will be t- 10 years from now, it'll be extinct. It won't be a game anymore. There won't be rugby. Do you think rugby is, do you think rugby is facing a kind of a bit of an existential semi-crisis over the next few years? Obviously, I'm referring to the danger and the, I know that, for example, a lot of parents I talk to, they kind of go, eh, I don't really want my kids playing rugby. Um, that's getting into it. And then at the top level, you have people going, yeah, well, concussion, that's going to be an issue. And the world we live in at the moment, which is obsessed with health and safety and the individual not getting harmed. Is there a chance that rugby will, could come under danger, could, could be in danger, Jerry, going forward? Well, that's a big question, Mario. Big, big question. There's no doubt that uh, rugby, when it turned professional and in the late 90s and early 90s, um, they, the players then, professional players then, were almost like the guinea pig generation, and they were flogged in training and flogged in games, and and you know a lot of them have paid a very heavy price for that. It, it sounds like really when you read some of the harrowing stories of the interviews they gave, and there was a sequence of them in the Guardian last year, and they were fairly harrowing. And you're um, talking about dementia. Yep, yep. Um, Early onset dementia. There's no doubt World Rugby have responded belatedly, but for the betterment of the game, and they've. They've, they're trying to make it safer and to to some degree they're exceeding. But then you see a tackle like Craig Gilroy's last week in the Ulster match and you see the opposition yes. head 
spring back snap. and you, it's mm. just and you wonder how Jacko Piper um, can use the protocols to deem this only a yellow card. I've no doubt that Craig Gilroy did not mean to cause any harm whatsoever and I see it being described as disgusting and horrific or whatever else. I don't think Craig Gilroy is that kind of player. These these things happen, but it has to be that the the protocols if that's it, if the protocols can be used for a player to only be given a yellow card for such a hit like that on, on that then the protocols aren't working and they need to be revisited and I think they should be ignored when something like that happens and for the betterment of the game the head just has to be sacrosanct from now on and you know that you're absolutely right because of the um, adverse publicity that this um, these cases of dementia and the lawsuit that these players are taking has adversely affected the sport that parents are much more wary of their sons and daughters playing the game than they would have been in the past and I also feel that numbers are going to keep on dwindling because the social game amateur game club game has struggled with increasingly with the advent of professionalism anyway and you look at something like American football and you'd fear that rugby might end up like that where basically the only people who play the sport are professionals Um, and I would hate to see that happen because the club game for me has been every bit as important as a lifeblood of the sport in this country as the schools game you know so often I interview players and they, yeah I took up the sport at under eights with a club yes the schools get a lot of the credit for developing this talent through the schools years and the schools cup system but the clubs played an integral part and very often they go back to their clubs and their games evolve further playing AIL or whatever as well so I think the clubs are huge and have a huge affection for the clubs in Ireland and I hope the club game can continue to survive but you'd have to think that numbers will continue to dwindle um, and uh, rugby has still got a lot to do to make it a safer game. There's no doubt about it. And you look, you even now, I look at you look at a lot of the tries that are scored, and they're just this low trajectory, head first, ploughing for the line, contact after contact after phase after phase after phase, and you just wonder: is this? They tried to erase this problem or reduce this problem by bringing in the 22 meter dropout when a player is held up over the line, the ball's not grounded. And it's a step in the right direction, but it still hasn't it still hasn't succeeded sufficiently in reducing these numbers of low pylon drive after drive after drive head first head first at the line, which just looks wrong. It just it just look it, you have to imagine this has to be still causing damage to players. And uh, yeah, look, I, I agree with you. I think I, I think rugby has a bit of an existential problem. Yep. Yeah. I also think um, I also think Mario, yeah. it's a great great sport as well, and it has lots and lots of great positive values and. You know, I think most rugby oh, players no. I speak to, they're just good people. And it, and and it's life enhancing playing the sport for a lot of them. The best one about one of the one of the things that people who aren't that familiar with rugby, but quickly learn about rugby when they start watching it is a very refreshing thing that they see, obviously, the abuse that referees take in in association football and Premier football and, and international football and, and Champions League football. And the abuse that referees take from players, the shouting in their faces, the roaring, the cajoling, the haranguing, the, the like hyenas around the ref. And then the absolute respect with which referees are able to control the pitch on, in rugby. You know, a man five foot nine, five foot ten, stands on the pitch with six foot ten monsters who are capable of destroying him or intimidating him. And of course, they step away because they respect the... Um, they respect the the official the officiating of the referee, which is always great to see that respect. But always very funny to see Johnny Sexton dealing with that as well. I've always described it as like because you can always hear Johnny on the mic, and I've, I was describing it on the radio show once as Johnny treats the referee like his old man who wants to take his phone away. So the referee goes penalty to Wales. 
Johnny would hear coming over. Sorry, what was that about? What, what did you? What, what was the penalty about? Sorry, Johnny, roll away, please. No, no, just, just, just tell me what, what the penalty. Johnny, please, no go. Look, just tell me, old man, will you? Johnny, I'm taking your phone. If you don't go away and go to your room, John, you're fucking so annoying, old man. You're such fucking pain in the hole. He always the grumpy head on him. He always reminds me of a 14 year old adolescent whose dad is is ticking him off. I I've a little bit of a bone to pick with you. I listen. Go on. I listen to Give Grub every morning. And you do a lot of the rugby podcasts, and I love them. Go on. Um, I think you portray Johnny a little bit unfairly, to be honest. I don't think he is such a grumpy man. He's actually yeah. a very humorous, witty, engaging human being. You know what I mean? He really is. Fuck off, um, Jerry. That isn't what's going to get me the laughs on the radio. I think I think you could tone it down. I think you could show a little bit of another side of him, to be honest. No, just <laughs> I'm going to defend now, Johnny Monday, here. Just for that now, on Monday... <laughs> I'm going to have you on Gift Grub going, listen, I think you've been a bit unfair on Johnny and Johnny going, shut up, Jerry, will you? Fucking I can fight my own battles. Leave me alone, yo, man. <laughs> so I'm going to do that now. Brilliant. By the way, um, on, respect, yeah. on respect for rugby referees, I would largely agree with you, although I think in latter years with the advent of the TMO and video replays, there is a lot more bleating and, 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 and questioning of decisions at referees. Like there's a lot, a lot of stuff you pick up in referee microphones, that, you know, a lot of chatter calling for penalties, calling for this, calling for the other. And the worst thing that rugby ever thought of devising was that captain's challenge. Do you remember they tried it in the Rainbow Cup? And then the last play of the game, a, a, player, a captain would just throw in a challenge because it might save him the game or not. I think captain's challenge was just a nonsense. We, we, we spent, I think rugby spends too much time going to, t- to um, replays anyway. Oh, it does, I'm afraid. It does, I'm afraid. I mean, they've really got it right now in tennis. I don't know if you're watching the Australian Open. But yeah. no, linesmen, no line judges and... It's live Hawkeye, live Hawkeye. So in other yeah. words, there's no challenging of calls. And tennis is really, tennis what has done some good things. What would John McEnroe have done? <laughs> he he didn't have anything to argue with. No machines no. even. I remember when Hawkeye first came out, McEnroe was playing and he did start a proto, a proto attempt at arguing with Hawkeye. He was there. Where's the fucking machine? And they wouldn't tell him where the machine is. And the umpire would go, the machine is Hawkeye, Mr. McEnroe. Where is it? I want to fucking see it. He was actually just, he wanted to see where the machine was so he could start an argument with that. But, uh, but you know. You do miss yeah. the human element though, don't you? Of the line judges and dodging yes. out of the way of 130 mile an hour serves down the middle and so forth. It's, uh, Absolutely. And there's also the argument that you're taking away the volunteerism of uh, local tennis mm-hmm. and local mm-hmm. tennis uh, clubs mm-hmm. who volunteer, the ball boys, ball girls and line judges. And you're also taking away jobs. Um, you mm-hmm. were putting people out of, uh, out of out of jobs by taking it away. Okay, Jerry, um, I've got a couple of quick fire questions for you. Well, you don't have to make them quick fire, but they're more like uh, questions I took on a list to ask you specifically. What would have been, uh, try and answer it, what, what would have been the best game of rugby you can remember seeing? That's a really tough one. I've been asked that before. Can I pick one Irish one and one, nar- one non-Irish one? Yes. I'd probably go 2009 Slam. Because it was a golden generation of Driscoll, O'Connell, and I think, you know, 10 of Ireland's most capped players of all time were on that team. Yeah. And they'd only yeah. ever won triple crowns. Yeah. And I remember... And Jack Kyle in the stand. That, you took the words out of my mouth. Like, when, when I saw that on the big screen, Jack Kyle in the stand, and then you see Jack Kyle and Brian and Driscoll meeting afterwards, it's almost yeah. like this bat, and finally, the yeah. first time, whatever it was, 61 yeah. years, it's finally yeah. been passed over. At yeah. last, a yeah. grand slam, and something tangible for O'Driscoll and O'Connell and O'Gara and all those fantastic players to yeah. show at the end of their careers. That was uh, that was hugely moving and the drama yeah. of us with O'Gara's drop goal and Stephen Jones missing that penalty and 
Yes. I do remember, like, it's normally a, it's normally restrained in a press box, but I do remember myself and Neil O'Reardon of the Sun absolutely hugging each other at the full-time whistle. And we've never hugged before or since and probably never will, but we did in that moment. Yeah, I, And, Jerry, the other thing I remember was the commentary as well, because I was in Smith's of Haddington Road. I was bawling. And a lot of grown men there were bawling our eyes out. And I have no problem about saying that. But I remember looking back in the commentary and it was just the Tony Ward shriek in the background where you just hear, because Ward, of course, was one of Ireland's great unsung out-halves and out-half that won nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the greats, one of the great footballing out-halves we ever had. Respected worldwide, by the way, but maybe not so much here. And when it goes over the dead ball line and Carney kicks it away, um, you just hear in the background, yes! <laughs> It was this shriek, a pure animalistic shriek by Tony Ward. And again, the culmination of years and years and years of nearlies and could be's and should be's. But this was when it happened. OK, so that's your game, the uh, the 2009 game. And the, and the other one? The non-Irish game would be the 2007 World Cup quarterfinal with France as hosts meeting the All Blacks in Cardiff. That yeah. was... Um, that was just sensational. That was just like the All Blacks were going were gonna to murder France. France had no chance. They'd been beaten by Argentina in Paris in the opening night. The All Blacks were running up 80, 90, 100 points every game. Had another great team. Um, and uh, I remember France were very clever. They wore a, a very dark blue um, jersey for that World Cup. Obviously with the intent they might bump into the All Blacks. So it was a toss of coin for change of shirts. So the All Blacks had to wear white shirts, which somehow made them look less imposing. I remember them doing the haka and Sebastian Chabal and marching towards them with the the caveman look. But beside him was the Iceman, Thierry Dusitoir, who made something like 36 tackles that night and scored a try. And it was Michelac off the bench. It was uh, Ellis at the full-time whistle, running away like a boy had stolen candy from the bully in the schoolyard with the ball in his hand and kicking it into the French crowd. Um, the drive back from Cardiff to London for a flight back to Paris and this convoy of French cars with their tricolours out the windows. It was just... And interviewing all Blacks players who, afterwards in the mix zone for whom it was just like somebody had died. And then going back to Paris for the semi-finals and finals and thousands upon thousands of New Zealand supporters traipsing around the streets of Paris dressed in all black with their team having gone home. And then... But then, sadly... France got beaten by England in the semi-finals and we had an England-South Africa yeah. World Cup final. I was hoping, oh, hoping, hoping, true. hoping I was going to see France and win a World Cup in the Champs-Élysées and have something to tell yeah. my grandchildren about. Oh, no, it was a truly, a truly brilliant game where France, at to, to, to over, that overused word, France at their mercurial best where they yeah. just surprised you and came from nowhere and out of yeah. the depths of depra- depression, really, and the depths of nowhere to go, they produced yeah. something utterly magical. Um Jerry, your favourite Six Nations anthem? Ah, the La Marseillaise, it has to be. That's still the best. Yeah, yeah it is, yeah. It's, it's just well. sensational. Actually, that, now you've got me excited again now. Well, so I'd go second. i go the Marseillaise. And actually, I'd go second. I'd go, I'll go Italy because the, the Italy one... Is um, it's 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 just Fratelli Italia da 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 sinestra da 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 da. I just love it. It's very it's very jumpy and fancy. I it was it. my favorite. It was my favorite one in the Euros and the football Euros when Italy won it, mm. and particularly Giorgio Chiellini at the end of the line would mm. always belt out the last word and step forward. It was just big smile yeah. on his face. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I know. Here you come from. 
But when you see the Marseillaise in Paris, that is the absolute epitome. That is the zenith of Six Nations rugby. The 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 cock the cock running out onto the pitch, and uh, and the the anthem. It's just something else. It's and if just, you hear the crowd belting it out with ten minutes ago, you know Ireland have lost. <laughs> yeah. Okay. The best try you've ever seen. The best try I ever saw off the top of my head, and I'm sure five minutes later, tomorrow or tonight, I think, oh, no, I should have mentioned this one off the top of my head because you haven't warned me about this. I will go one of the tries from the end of the earth by France. I, it was in Twickenham and Serge Blanco. England had a penalty and missed, went wide, and Serge Blanco caught the ball behind his own goal line, own try line. And I think a lot of us just stepped away to write down the note of the missed penalty, whatever. And next minute they were counter-attacking up the right-hand wing Didier Camberbert did a chip and gather and then did a cross kick and Philip Sant'Andre scored under the posts. I've seen better tries on TV, but I think that's the best try I've ever seen in the flesh, so to speak. That's one of my top two or three as well. Do you remember this one? I'll do the commentary for it. John Pullen, Fergus Slattery, <laughs> Gareth Edwards, a dramatic start! <laughs> Fill the listeners in. What was I doing there? There was the uh, great, great, great Barbarians try against the All Blacks in 1973, I think. It was a counter-attack by Phil Bennett. They went up the left wing. You man the commentary is that guy, Cliff, Cliff, Cliff Morgan. Morgan. And he, yep. I think Gibson gets a slight, slight touch and he just says, Gibson, that's his genius. And on it goes. And then, yeah, who was the scrum half who came up in the... Gareth Edwards yep. then finishes just off. Goes, his, his commentary is beautiful because he was a former great player, but he was also a brilliant commentary. And you just yeah. see him go, Gareth Edwards! A dramatic start! <laughs> and it was just absolutely wonderful. Really, really wonderful. Uh, let me see. The best fans... The best fans. Because I can talk all day about this because I don't drive a car. So I have a guy who drives me and he kind of, we formed a good, great relationship and we talk about all sorts of things, politics and football. And he'll have something to say about the rugby as well. But as a taxi driver, he'd have something to say about the fans. And this is the way he puts it. So he would go, um, I'd say the favorite fans. Now he'd be a real Irish and GAA guy, like, you know? Yeah. And I go, the favorite fans. And he go, no problem about that, Mario. The English fans. No, absolute best rugby fans and and i would go why that's interesting and he goes most generous most yeah. on for the crack most fun they are they are really generous tippers and they come over and the irish and the english get on pretty much like a house on fire um and i remember being in twickenham as well for 2018 and i've never ever encountered such graciousness after losing than you got from the English public in pubs all over the place. People, English guys coming over to you going, mate, the best side, Ireland. We want to be Ireland. We want to be Ireland. And they were just lovely the way they said. And I sort of then went, um, tell us about the other things. Scotland, yeah, okay. Uh, France doesn't like the French because they all go to their hotel rooms and eat baguettes. <laughs> they don't right. spend money. <laughs> That's right. And they like to go to posh restaurants and they don't like, um, they don't really spread it around. And then, uh, so yeah, so that was what his take was. I've heard that many a time from taxi drivers, pub owners, and so forth that their, their favourite fans are right are the English, and their yeah. their, their least favourite are the French because they, they spend the least. The Welsh are pretty good; they're good spenders. Yeah, um, yeah. I, Irish fans are brilliant abroad. Like they really turn up in extraordinary numbers abroad. Like you go to World Cup in two thousand and fifteen, and you know eighty thousand and. Wembley or the Olympic Stadium, whatever it was, for a pool match against Romania or whatever. Nearly all of them Irish. I remember a match in Dunedin in the World Cup against Italy uh, in 2011. Capacity 36,000, of which about roughly 
35,980 were Irish fans and there was a pocket of about 20 Italians. It was quite extraordinary in a closed roof as well. But if I'm not allowed to pick Irish, I would pick... You reminded me, the most generous fans in defeat I've ever come across were Toulouse after Munster beat them in Bordeaux in the semi-final in 2000. They were just ridiculously... They'd been... It was the most wonderful atmosphere. The place was rocking. The Red Army had about 8,000 there. Toulouse provided the other 18,000. There was the, Everybody was in their seats about an hour before kickoff. It was belt not day. The, the, the atmosphere was just... They were banging their drums, singing their songs. I remember Paul Ackford, the next English second row, standing there in his shorts as he was a journalist in the press box, just listening to all this about 20 minutes, 15 minutes. It was like it was going up every minute before kickoff. And I remember him just standing there, just nodding his head in approval. And they were really, really generous afterwards because they're quite a knowledgeable public, the Toulouse fans. They know yeah. their rugby. And uh, the other ones were the Argentina in the World Cup in 2007. They were just extraordinary. Mm. They were extraordinary. Were they? They were, they, would, they, would, they would turn up an hour in advance, sing their songs, and they would be half an hour afterwards outside after losing or winning the third place playoff with the flag about 100 metres long and uh, holding up the flag and all singing their, their uh, Spanish songs, Argentinian songs. It was just, they were brilliant fans. Absolutely brilliant. My fa- now that I've, I've invented a new category, my favourite jersey. My favourite jersey is the Argentinian one. Pumas. Love yeah. the Argentinian yeah. jersey. It just just a little bit too like Black Rocks, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is very like Black Rocks, but you don't get tanned, tanned, beautiful sort of men in Black Rock as much. You know, the, the lads, yeah. the Argentina lads, they just wear it like yeah. supermodels. Yeah. They, they do. It's yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. yeah. And of course, the, the black shirt. It just when the black shirt is just ridiculous to look at. It's just beautiful. Dude, no, I think you're right. Uh, I think the Pumas. Yeah, I'd agree with you. The Pumas is the best in my view, yeah. and the Blacks are—I'd go second with the Blacks. Uh, but uh, that's that's just a little bit of trivia there. All right, Jerry, uh, just one more thing to do. Um, a few people have been listening to this podcast live, and um, you, you know yourself, Maria, and they want to ask you a couple of questions. Are you all right with that, Jerry? Cool, the gang. Yeah. So Ronan O'Gara is on the line. Do you want to say hello to him? Hi, Raj. Yeah, how's it going, Jerry? <laughs> Good here you. In La Rochelle. <laughs> um, just a bone to pick with you here, Jerry. I know we fell out once before, but I have a piece of paper here that says, signed by yourself, and it says, we have an NDA about anything that was discussed during the writing of this book. So, Jerry, I don't know if you have any decent solicitor or barrister going around at the moment, but I'm tooled up, I'm lawyered up, and I'm ready to go. Are you, Jerry? Okay, well, I'll see you in court. <laughs> Johnny Sexton's on the line. Say hello to Johnny. Hi, Johnny. Hi, oh, Jerry. Uh, listen, Jerry, thanks a million for telling that fucking prick uh, that he's overdoing me on the radio. Really appreciate uh, your words. And uh, thanks a million, Jerry. And thanks for picking me on the team again there yesterday. Because uh, actually, when you don't pick me, they don't pick me. So actually, the Irish Times picked the team. So, uh, thanks a minute. Otherwise, they were going to pick that fucking agent, Curti. <laughs> I hate it when anybody gets my place. Sorry, I'm getting a bit angry again. Uh, but, uh, listen, thanks for sticking up for me for that little bollocks on the radio. Cheers, Jerry. <laughs> uh, who else is on the line? Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, uh, Rob Carney's on the line. Say hello to Rob. Hi, Rob. Hi, Jerry. How are you? Uh, Jerry, can I just say I always liked your... Uh, your sense of style, um, particularly your moustache. Um, and you used to wear a chain around your neck. 
Is that right? Do you still do that? Nope. <laughs> you did wear a chain, though, didn't you, Jerry? No, I can't remember. <laughs> yeah, I remember you used to. I remember your legs. You used to show me the chain. <laughs> and um, anyway, I love your hair as well, the wavy hair. There's a big Pablo Escobar vibe off you, Jerry. <laughs> so, <laughs> just wondering, is there anything we should know? Rob, Rob, you're getting a bit cheeky there. Nothing not, not to say to Rob, no, uh, no Jerry. No, 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 no. Pablo Escobar thing was a bit low blow, I think. Fintan O'Toole's on the line. It's your colleague. Say hello to Fintan. Hi, Fintan. Jerry, hello. This is Fintan O'Toole from the Irish Times, and I've really very much enjoyed the existential and almost deliberative, the beautiful kind of, it's 100 years of James Joyce, and you have a Joycean kind of quality to your rugby presentation. I wonder, do you think there's any room for a more maybe intellectual rugby article in, you know, maybe, maybe could you help me to write about rugby, maybe in the Fintan O'Toole way. So, for example, I see, you know, you say the scrum, I see it, the scrum as a course of a representation of the Irish housing crisis. Um, the ball being, you know, namely a three bedroom house in Sandy Mount or Falls Bridge, but probably not somewhere as posh as Sandy Mount. But the, um, the ball is obviously a house in Blanchestown. The scrum is obviously the buyers. Um, I see that as a, a very, very interesting uh, metaphor. Also, the backline, Jerry, the, the political elite, um, you know, Leo Varadkar as Johnny Sexton. I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of fiddling around with this. Do you think there's somewhere we, we could go with this, Jerry? Help me. I never quite thought of it like that, Fintan, I must confess, but you're the man. That's great. Okay, thanks for getting back, and I'll never call you again. <laughs> ah, lads, that was fantastic. Thanks a million to all those callers. Um and uh, listen, Jerry, uh, uh, great experience. Love that. Now I could. Uh, I mean, what a better, what better time of the year to talk about rugby than just before it happens, eh? The special it's time. Six Nations coming along is uh, it's the best tournament in the world, the best annual tournament in the world. And thanks for being so giving and sharing, Jerry. Really enjoyed it, Mario. No problem at all. Thanks very much. Thanks, dude. Cheers, buddy. And thank you to Jerry Thornley. Always great to talk to Jerry. Check out his Irish Times columns, which appear at least once a week, sometimes twice or three times a week during the Six Nations. Thanks, of course, as always, to Curry's um, for their ongoing support. Mainly, thanks to you for listening, subscribing, and joining in in the whole thing. Contact me, see me on Twitter or Facebook, or an Insta. I'm an Insta bitch now, would you believe it or not? Um, thanks a million. See you same time, same place next week. Bye. Bye.